Welcome to Talent Sandbox, the podcast that explores how to optimize and future-proof talent acquisition. Join us as we discuss the latest trends, strategies, and best practices for attracting and retaining top talent. Our expert guests will share their insights on everything from smart sourcing and the candidate experience to diversity and inclusion, offering actionable takeaways that you can apply to your own team. Whether you're a recruiter, hiring manager, or HR professional, we're here to help you build a better talent acquisition process. On today's episode, I am thrilled to introduce Theo Smith. Theo is a leading neurodiversity and inclusive recruitment advocate, founder of Neurodiversity at Work Limited, Neurodiversity Advisor at Dynamis Group, author of Neurodiversity at Work, Drive Innovation, Performance and Productivity with a Neurodiverse Workforce, and podcast host of Neurodiversity, Eliminating Kryptonite and Enabling Superheroes. Wow. And if that wasn't enough, Theo, who was once a professional actor, is also a leading expert in the field of recruitment. He now uses his thespian skills to entertain his daughter and son, while also inspiring organizations and, quite frankly, the world, to the idea that neurodiversity is the future of work and beyond. Hi, Theo, and thanks for joining us. No problem at all. Good to be here. Great to have you. Now, I know you and Neil go back a long way, but for the purposes of me and the rest of the listeners, we'd love to hear your story around how and why you entered neurodiversity and what it means to you. Wow. Yeah. So day one, I was born. I was ND. (laughs) It's that simple. (laughs) However... (laughs) I didn't realize, right? They don't have this ticket that when you're born, you kind of get, here you go, Theo, you're autistic, ADHD, dyslexic, a lot of co-occurrence going on there. So it wasn't until much later in life that I started to understand that perhaps the way my my brain worked wasn't aligned to how a lot of people's brains. And yet our environment, our systems, our processes, our built environments, the way that governments work, politics, education system, right? They've been built in a particular way. And I think they've even become more restrictive over time rather than less restrictive in many respects. And so it wasn't until I was 21 as a mature student at university studying an acting degree, which my wife says is a Mickey Mouse degree. All right for her to say that. She has too many degrees, right? She's the other end of the spectrum. And it wasn't until then that I sat in a room and somebody talked in the first weeks and said, a conversation around dyslexia. And I'm not joking you, around 50% of the class were like, I identify with that. And not because 50% of the world are are dyslexic, but because a lot of the people in the university that I was at, which was an extension of Manchester University, was an affiliation of, so I get my degree from Manchester University, but I was actually in a theatre school. Um, It was set up for kids, young people who otherwise wouldn't get to university. It was the acting school for people from backgrounds that otherwise wouldn't get into acting, right? So we were, it's an incredible group of diverse people. Mm. And Manchester's massively diverse anyway. Yeah. So that is the point at which it was like, oh, and I'm like, okay, so that's why I bombed out of school. That's why I bombed out of college. That's why I've had challenges with, Lots of stuff that I won't go into detail, right? But uh, trouble as a kid, kind of fitting in, um, not understanding nuanced language, not understanding jokes, 
fight or flight. I either ran away or I hit someone. That's all I could do. Like, I didn't have the ability to manage that, like, the emotional regulation, right? So that I just panic. And that panic was like, kick a chair over, shout at somebody, hit somebody, or literally run away, go away, go and find somewhere to hide. And then because you don't understand why you're doing that, you just keep doing it, right? And it becomes your norm. Now, if we look at some of the people, that may end up in a worse way. They may end up in prison. They may end up doing something uh, extreme that affects their life or other people's lives. And some of that happened. And it wasn't until I was in that safe space, and it was safe because drama was my therapy, that I really started to better understand myself and my strengths. But it was 20, almost 20 years later, or five years ago, that I then connected the dots with ADHD and autism and all the other dyscalculia because I, I, I really struggled with the maths and numbers and process. And so it wasn't until I sat in a room of recruitment leaders, because I was a recruitment leader by that point, the only place I could get a job, right? <laughs> we were with an acting degree. Um, I was a recruitment leader and with other recruitment leaders and somebody talked about the topic of neurodiversity. And all of a sudden, I'd put dyslexia to one side because it didn't work for me. What I mean by that is the adaptations that were offered to me didn't make sense. So I threw dyslexia out the window. It made sense for a little bit. It helped me to go, okay, I'm a bit different. My brain works a bit differently. Wow. But then the things that you use to help your brain didn't work. So I threw dyslexia out. And it wasn't until that point, the journey with my daughter and realizing that she was very much like me. She actually looks like me as well, which is really scary for her. (laughs) I wish she didn't grow a beard. Um, (laughs) But if she does, I'll love her, right? It doesn't matter. But, But... it's like through the reflection of my daughter and her experiences. Yeah, I mean, so so many people listening to this, Theo, will relate to this story, right? I mean, you know, I, I've shared my story around, you know, neurodiversity and my children as well, right? So, you know, what's really interesting is of how we become, and through your work, how we're becoming more aware of neurodivergent uh, children and, and adults as well. And, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the the things that the takeaways that you've taken from your journey as you've moved from a, an adolescent to an adult you know some of those things that you know certainly from a workplace perspective you think employers should be getting right now and you know when we should be more aware of how do we support rather than hinder you know some people right communication is one of the biggest challenges we have there's now great research coming into this because autistic researchers or dyslexic researchers Brilliant academics, people studying PhDs. In the past, the information we were being given, I don't feel was a good representation of us and who we are. Therefore, when I started out on this journey, when I say started out, like really started out four or five years ago, I saw long lists of things that were wrong with me. And now, if people, if organizations, the communication specialists, the learning development specialists, the HR specialists are going to research because they're interested in it, they're going to see these long lists of what's wrong with people. And I'm not joking, very few things. And they were the, the typical things you'd expect, like they may be good at mathematics. I'm not good at mathematics. I'm the opposite, polar opposite of that. They may be a good tech person, developer. I'm not that person. So like all of a sudden, all the things that they say are good yeah. are actually the things that I'm really bad at. Which So then you put me in the business environment, like even if they do care about neurodiversity or neurodivergence or however you want to define it, 
those people who've been marginalized or system impacted because of the way their brains work, it, all they're seeing is things that do not associate with a lot of the community. And therefore, the changes that they may make with good intention and not the right changes, coming back to the person giving me different colored paper for my dyslexia, and that makes no difference. Zero. Right? So if it's the only thing you do for me, you've done nothing for me other than confuse me. Right? Put that into the word context. What is happening still today is that lack of understanding around the needs of individuals. Then we've got, as I talked about the communication, you've got the inability sometimes for this type of person, first let's call them type A, to be able to communicate with type B, right? And that type A and type B is not neurotypical and neurodivergent. Cool, how are we going to define, right? Actually, because that's an easy one, you could just put them into that part, the divergence and the not divergence. Yeah. Well, what's divergent for starters? I could go on a long one about that one. You see. But, but it's actually around somebody may be very rule-based. They may not be neurodivergent, okay. but they may be very rule-based. Yes. The way they've been brought up, the way their brain works, the way they've been trained is that everything has to have a box and a rule. Mm-hmm. And we have to know where it came from. Um, evidence-based research, validate it, right? This person A comes up against person B who is like me. I'm not this side of the fence or that side of the fence. I see billion colors. I hear a billion sounds. I feel a billion emotions, right? So me, I'm not rules-based, right? It's because I have an inability to be it. So why would I torture myself to be that person? Now, what organizations are not understanding is those two people, not only will they struggle to work together, because one will be really trying to get down to the rules, the other will trying not to go with the rules, right? They could be two leaders in an organization. They could be two people working on a project in an organization. They could just be a couple living at home, trying to live together, and they just cannot manage. I literally had a a conversation a few minutes before this podcast, and the lady was telling me about her husband is, he's autistic. And I only realized he was autistic until later in life, right? And, but he's also an engineer as well. And he said, you know, you know, the, the saying about the, engineers, scientists, you know, they like to work on their own. There's a certain environment. They like to have a certain level of communication, but it's no surprise, right? You know, if they are neurodiverse, then the employer is not catering to their needs at all, right? They, you know, uh, as an individual contributor, they say they can't do any more. Well, actually you can, right? You know, you can do more. In fact, you can do more wonderful things than anyone else. But the challenge is that the employer doesn't know how to embrace that skill set. So I think what you're saying is spot on. You know, obviously, having worked for some of the you know biggest businesses in the world, you know, they, I think we've got such a big opportunity to embrace, you know, and change the workplace for for the future as well. Absolutely, fully agree. I was in a special educational e school the other week. It's something that I don't normally do. I was asked how to do it. I like to challenge myself in areas that I've never been before. It scares me. Right. Um, but I've become used to being scared and, and fearful. <laughs> and so I went there and one of the questions that came from the kids, and this is kids who are, you know, autistic, dyslexic, ADHD, often they've either been expelled from school or they've just not been included in school. Right. Therefore, they've not been tailored for they've, their parents or they've been extracted from that environment. And one of the children turned around when they were asking about my book and how I wrote it. 
I was explaining that I recorded it like this and extracted and downloaded the conversations and then I was able to pull out because I can't write properly, I can't spell properly, I struggle to write. So that was a way for me to get huge amounts of information and content and then to get it down on paper and then to work through it. And he, and one boy who I was told at the end is autistic and he spoke uh, very slowly and very purposefully and very to the point and with great clarity, right? And I'd say it's one of the best questions we had, even though the other kids were like, oh, right? This is what we've got to remember. This is a neurodivergent, neurodiverse community, however you want to define it. People mm-hmm. marginalizing system impacted kids. Yeah. And even within that cohort, there's a lack of understanding and appreciation, right? But what he did, and this is if we can grab what he did within organizations, it's powerful. He turned around and went, but Theo, when you record it, did you have a good microphone? And I was like, no. At the time, I didn't really have the money for the microphone. I didn't. I just used the computer. And said, ah, there's your problem. He said, you will probably have not got the words correct. You may have even got the words incorrect to such a point that they might look like swear words when they weren't. They might look racist when they weren't. They might look, and I was just like, yes, you are exactly right. The quality of my microphone would have, and the quality of my accent, and the inability for the technology to understand my accent, right? That might be a whole other thing. But that was one of the most brilliant insights because what he did is he went right down to the the technical detail of what I did and how that would have translated and the impact that that would have had on my ability to ensure that that content reflected what I said and what somebody else said, right? When we think about that, that is no different to any job within the workplace. If we discount that individual and we're frustrated by them because they went to that level of the detail, we miss the brilliance, the opportunity mm. to learn from the insight, and we just see them as frustrating and exactly. annoying. And no, we have to find a place for that person to express that view because what they're going to do is they're going to get us to quickly realize where we're making mistakes and errors, rectify them, and that will increase performance, capability, and what, what organizations want, profitability, whatever, right? And this, and this is what we, you know, we talk about a diverse workforce, right? But this is what we're trying to drive towards. So seeking out those nuggets of information and insights and ways of working and ways of thinking as well. And, you know, as an employer, it's similar to the environment you find yourself in education, right? You're in a box, you're in a square peg, square peg in a round hole doesn't work in the eyes of education and some of our employers. And again, this is where we need to stop personalizing our approach to developments and how we look at taking employees from good to great because if we don't listen to those voices in the room we're missing out on a huge opportunity so a couple of things there one is i've done a lot of work with organizations now and i've got a lot of data to back this up and it varies but i did a work with a healthcare organization and they were surprised through i did a detailed audit we went in depth i gave them an 80 page Mm -hmm. report and we had all the feedback sessions right but, but the, some of the data that came back for them was that 10% of their workforce um, have the label of being ADHD autistic. Right? Mm-hmm. One in 10. Now, they were surprised by that because of when we started the project, they believed in it because they're a healthcare organization. They want to do something about it. But they were like, are our nurses and carers really? Like, is this even a problem, a thing? But we will explore it, of course. 
will invest in it because we understand it's important. But what we found then, because we went even deeper, is that two in 10 more identified with being neurodivergent but didn't have the label, right? So that's now three in 10. And by the way, I did a lot of awareness sessions. So the workforce understood what we were talking about. They were able to answer the questions. Then the final question, I say the final, it was a lot of questions, but the final in this section was, do you have somebody in your close family network that you're responsible for? There is, right? 41% of the workforce. And some of the other questions and stuff that went into around the impact of the economy, have they got enough to feed themselves? Right? And so all of a sudden, all of, not just yes, family members, but also actually we haven't got enough money to pay for our bills. That level of data and insight yeah. is powerful because we're not then talking about one or two people. We're talking about potentially 40% of your workforce are impacted in that instance. And for tech companies I've done this work for, 50% have come back and said, mm-hmm. I think I'm uh, ND. So it's like it's mind-blowing when you start to get to those level of figures. And organizations have not talked about it. So these people, exactly. my wife, she has all the additional challenges of living with me, but they don't talk about it. They don't talk. These labels are not getting discussed. So is it they don't want to talk about it or they don't know how to talk about it? Don't know how to talk about it. Don't know if it's a thing. Don't want to open Pandora's box. Scared of if they yeah. do what will happen. Organizations need, I mean, it's, they don't need they have massive infrastructure and they can employ somebody and, and do it with in-house, whatever, right? But a lot of organizations just don't have the time, energy. And yeah. like this organization, it was an area of interest because it resonated like you and I, somebody had a partner who's ADHD who's yeah. in a senior position. That's where the interest came. But there's the thing of how do you prioritize something like this when you already have so many other issues in terms of business as usual? So you've got challenges with recruitment, you've got challenges with retention, you've got all the other HR policies, procedures, you might have to let people go, all this other stuff. But you can easily go, well, I don't know about it, so I don't have to think about it. And you and I have been in this, Neil, right? It's a situation where mm. if you don't have the yeah, data, yeah, yeah. right, you don't know yeah. the pain point, so you can you can ignore it. It's when that pain in your belly is so bad, you've got to go see the doctor. And when that doctor says, actually, it is this or it's that, you can deal with it. It's the same with the data, it's the pain. Until somebody starts showing you that this pain is significant, you deal with it. Yeah. Now, the problem with your diversity is it's not a visible pain for organizations. They're linking it to other stuff. They're linking it to health and well-being. They're linking it to bad behavior. They're linking it to poor management. They're linking it to all these other stuff when fundamentally the core of the problem that they have is they're not thinking around neurodiversity and neuroinclusion as part of their HR people strategy and when they see it an open pandora's box actually does the opposite collapse the organization it gives people permission to talk about it and that's when you can start to go i now know there's a pain i know where it is and i've talked to the expert to understand around what that may be and how we can rectify it yeah and that's where the magic starts happening where you start linking it to business outcomes right and you know you mentioned something really key before which is productivity you know, what have you seen around, you know, when companies have, you know, got their approach right, what have you seen as in how it's impacted productivity in a business? So this is me remembering names now, right? So there's plenty of organizations that have been doing this for 10 plus years, right? JP Morgan, so you can go and find the data and stats on that. And it was about four or five years ago, I think. Now this is through autism at work programs. So I just want to 
I want to be careful because we're talking about small cohorts of people. Right? Mm. So I try to be mindful of that. Now, there is power in that, power in doing things in projects. There's power in piloting things. Right? I advocate for mm. that because sometimes you can make sure you don't press a button that explodes everything because you didn't give due consideration to how it's going to work and you did it on scale mm. before you truly understood the impact. So that's good. But a pilot program that never goes beyond that is a problem, right? Because it only impacts a small group of people that never goes beyond it. And how do those people then get promoted and progress if you never do anything about taking that pilot to the masses? So I just want to caveat it. But JP Morgan is an example, proves those people as part of that autonomous work project were outperforming their peers in the roles that they were working. Now, typical roles, if we think about where this came from, specialists in sending in consultants into the likes of IBM and Microsoft who were ND, who were autistic, into roles like mm-hmm. developers and testers. Those companies, six, seven, eight, nine years ago, working with specialists and were like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, they're sending us these people that we've not had to employ. Yeah. They're amazing. And because they're your, we know the reality about working with consultancies, right? You don't have to employ them. Come in, they drop in, they can deliver something. If it's not working, you ask to swap them or whatever it is, right? Let's be realistic about this, right? There's a risk taken away. So that was a great way to take the risk away, but show the capability and performance. And that is where this all started from. That then, you know, the Microsofts, the EYs, the other JP Morgans, the Capgem, or whatever, all these big companies were like, well, if we do this in our own small controlled environment with some support, we now know it works because we've seen these people come in so that we can do it. And we can benefit from it. And hopefully these organizations then share the data and analysis, which they do, because that's what they do. They're management consultancies, right? And that they they then, they, no, there's some good in it though, right? There's some good because they can drive other organizations to want to do something about this because they're seen as the leaders in the space. Yeah. So the, the evidence is there, the top, but I also want to say the evidence is there in small organizations, Neil. But I talk about neurodiversity by design, something I talk about now rather than by accident. I think a lot of what we see in smaller organizations, a lot of unicorns, fast growth tech companies, what they're seeing is neurodiversity by accident, 50% neurodivergence within the organizations. I've had surveys come back that have shown some of these organizations have 70% leadership who are ND and like 30% people. So what's happening is when they started, they recruited all these people quickly. The barriers to recruiting them were much lower than these big corporate organizations. So they hired all these developers and testers and salespeople, different jobs, not just engineers, right? But with high level of neurodivergence, because like in recruitment, the barriers are low, you get in, it's a job you could get with an acting degree. So then, uh, so what happens <laughs> is at some point then, they go through series ABC funding. And when that happens, yeah. they commit to the first cohorts of people and they promote those people into senior roles. So what you've then got is, a lot of neurodivergence that translates into leadership, which is not necessarily common in other areas, bigger organizations, because as it grows, they then squeeze the neurodivergence out. Like I'm talking, I'm, I don't have the full facts and data because it's hard to get. I'm talking about from what I've seen, from the surveys I've done, from the organizations I've spoken to, from the data they've given me, like broadly, that is what I see. And at the end of the day, for me, that makes sense because... We either see neurodivergence at the very top of organizations, Ellen Musk is an example, right? Um, where they may have had money and power and ability to get there. Or I find we see it in the fast growth, smaller tech companies and what have you, 
But when they get bigger, it seems to start to disappear when rules, regulations, systems, processes, and they start to have these people who they think become difficult overnight. No, it's just you've put things in place that yeah. doesn't meet their needs yeah, yeah, and you've not yeah. considered yeah. them. Therefore, neurodiversity by accident means law cases, it means problems, mm. it means HR issues. We can resolve those things now. And going back kind of on, from a practical level and kind of linking back to the way that you recorded your book, I guess, how do we kind of fix that, if you like? How do we ensure that it's, you know, from a DE&I perspective, that it's a level playing field? You know, what do we need to, as employers, as organisations, what do we need to put in place and, you know, adapt so that just because of you might record a book differently to how I would write a book, it doesn't make the book of any less quality. It just, the difference is just how it's produced. But what in-house, what are the practicalities of what, what can we start putting in place to make sure that we're not missing out on the kind of talent that you can provide by just because we didn't have a recording element in place for that to be done, so to speak? Yeah, so we have a massive issue with the recruitment industry. And I think in-house talent acquisition, most of the people who ended up in talent acquisition came from consultancies, around 78%. Research was done several years ago, and I, and I think it's shown. And you don't even need to do the research, just go on LinkedIn and search, right? And external consultancies is about 80% white male, right? And so that that is an immediate problem that we have that now in-house teams, that's diversified. COVID might have helped with that as well, shifting people into mm-hmm. roles. Before that, it was HR administration, so that makeup was different again. Talking about TA. So we've got a problem then around hiring, not just with neurodiversity in mind, but with diversity more broadly, right? Because if there's no uh, faces that aren't white and male, we know what that's going to, know what's going to happen with that, right? Um, it's, mm. It doesn't take rocket scientists. Mm. So that's, we need to diversify that, right? And I think a lot of organizations and leaders are starting to recognize that. And that means developing talent from the ground up because mm. there may not already be representation. So you can't go to your old agency and pick somebody out because they're not there, right? Yeah. So there's that. Mm. Oh, now we have to be mindful about that and purposeful. And therefore, we have to have the relevant training to support those individuals who may not have had the experience. Well done. Keep going. So, um, so, uh, so, so that's one element: uh, the training, development, uh, the support around awareness, understanding. Right, and there's still a huge lack of awareness and understanding. There's energy is behind the concept because of lived experience. Because of my, that is happening more recently. You know, TikTok has 22 billion views. Hashtag ADHD. A year ago, is about half that. It has about 21.5 billion views of autism. Yeah. So we know there's a, a high level of interest, yeah. but a huge amount of misinformation, yeah. right? And are now a belief that anybody could be ADHD. No, 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 no. We're still talking about 4% of the population. Mm-hmm. Right? But co-occurrence with dyslexia can increase in 10, 20, 30%, right? So that's what we need to educate our recruiters on, right? It's really important they understand what it is, why it matters, and then how it can positively and negatively impact people and the, the way strengths and challenges overlap, right? And if we can educate recruiters to understand that, then they can educate their hiring managers because we know recruiters are great educators within that and influencers because they learn. No, totally recruiter relate. speaks to a thousand people and then they, they send someone in, right? They've got a lot of content in their head. I totally relate to that, Theo, because 
if I think back around 12 years ago now, when I started my journey around diversity within talent acquisition, and, you know, and I did it because of my two girls, right? I wanted more female leaders in organizations moving forward, right? So I made a conscious decision because I had the control to do that as a TA leader to say, this is our strategy around diversity. Now, no one was pushing me internally, honestly. No one was saying, hey, Neil, you need to do X, Y, and Z. I did it because I knew it was the right thing to do for the future. Now, I give you that context because if we talk about neurodiversity, it's the right thing to do, right? So this is not something we what we think is a statistic or a, a KPI we're trying to hit here. And I think this is the difference that business leaders, TA leaders need to, to make those decisions because we know it's the future in terms of driving our workforce to become more effective and efficient. So I think you're right in terms of making those conscious and subconscious decisions of which way do organizations go? Because as TA leaders, we've got a great opportunity to influence this. Let me just tell you something, right? That most people in the ND community now who are trying to support and make a business of it are starting to lean into the recruitment. What does that tell you? I mean, and we, we have an issue with HR. Well, not with all HR. What I mean is we have that as an issue as well that we need to rectify. I the misunderstanding of why somebody is struggling and they shouldn't be managed out of the business, basically. And there will be legal challenges when they understand that mm-hmm. actually they're being mistreated and misunderstood. Right? So that that's the HR bit, but there's a huge interest in the recruitment, onboarding, um, retention piece, and it's not not rocket science. Why? Around if you're thirty percent of your workforce and you're a divergent, and you are not doing right by them, that's thirty percent of your workforce. They're potentially underperforming and don't feel valued, mm. and therefore they're not going to show up for you in the way that they might show up for you if you cared and considered for them. Right? Mm. So that's thirty percent of people in your business now. Right? Then think about a recruiter's driving people in constantly. Are they driving people in? So they might be driving, 30% of the people they might be driving in inadvertently. Uh, people who are then going to underperform potentially, not because they're not brilliant, but because you drive them and go, this candidate, I love this candidate. And then they go, boom. And you're like, oh, yeah. goodness. So what recruiters need to know is there's something needs down here. I can go and influence a board level, and I do, right? So I go and talk at the, right at the top of organizations, and they're like, wow, Theo, it's incredible. But unless they can influence middle management, it mm. not matter. But what I do know is they've got the big budget, so I can get the money off them that can make the big impact. That is why I, focusing on the top is really important for me, because it enables money that can change things. However, middle management is powerful who are some of the biggest influences, if you're good at your job, um, of middle management, um, it's recruiters. It's yeah. absolutely recruiters. And if you're not the biggest influencer, right, and you're not going to be of all, right? Because some managers are really, really, really difficult and they don't want to come around to your way of thinking. But I always say, sometimes you've just, like the pilot thing, go where the energy is, improve the concept, those people who are really difficult eventually will turn around and go, well, how come they're hiding these great people? Mm. How come they're performing really well? How come everybody in their team's enjoying themselves? You know, and now and I'm ready to make why, that move. You know, that's why we're you know, the driving force behind you know, Talent Sandbox and trying to drive, you know, these behaviors. So there's going to be a lot of recruiters listening to this. You know, and I'd love to know from you the kind of top three things they must be doing as a recruiter to support neurodiversity from a, from a TA perspective or a recruiting perspective. Communication is key not just in terms of the things that you write. You know, we think about algorithms for building technology. You get the algorithm wrong, you get the recipe wrong, 
And then if the thing at the end of it tastes horrible, it's because the recipe was wrong. The chef may be incredible, but the recipe was wrong, right? So simple, right? Now think about the words that you use. If you use the wrong words, then there may be a misunderstanding or miscommunication just by the words that you use. Too many or too few, you need to ensure that you're capturing the key point. And I say this around communication. So this isn't just about candidates, this is about managers. If you need a manager to do something, right? You need to put at the top of that email, actionable, you do this. Right? You can then put all the evidence-based research that goes underneath it that you want them to learn about, right? But at the top of it, you need to go, you need to do this. That works for everyone. The more detail-orientated people can then go below. You need to do some stuff. Now think about that in every facet and aspect of all the stuff that you do, whether it's your job adverts, emails, whether it's when you talk to somebody on the phone, it's great that you have this big, energetic, robust conversation, but do you both know what you need to do after that conversation? Mm. You know, and you may go away feeling really energized by it, but then that person walks in, they bonds in the interview, and they go, what happened there? Right? Mm. Just sometimes we need to strip it back to the, the basic elements. And I come back to the point around it's not like all ND people get each other and neurotypicals don't. Rubbish. With humans, right? With humans, some. People who are autistic get along better with people who are not autistic. Some people with ADHD get along with people. Like that is the complexity of the human experience. Yeah. You know, we're all from different places. So make sure you think about content, communication, recipes, right? Mm. Everything you do is a recipe. It's not working. What can you change in that recipe? Because that's what I would do when I'm cooking food. I try something. If it doesn't work, I try something else. A, B test, right? Now, so that's one bit, your communication, the way that you engage, you should constantly be thinking about it and adapting it and asking why it works and why it doesn't, because often we don't do that. Right? So self-critical, analyzing uh, that piece of work. That then works across all of the areas and aspects of your work, what I would call an audit, right? And in the past, I would hate the idea of an audit because it's wrong detail. But actually, all it really is about is understanding where you're going and where you're going to stop on that journey or where you've been and a point where you've stopped on that journey and then being able to understand that and being able to use that to evidence the decisions that you're then going to make. So again, that can be around auditing your advert and thinking around what's in it that may cause mm-hmm. harm or offense. And you can, you can ask somebody else to help you with that. So you could do it in a team, get four recruiters together with different experiences, different views, get your adverts together, share experiences, go through them, see what you like about each other's. Your emails, the same thing. This is where I normally talk to somebody. How do you feel about that? Right? These are things you can do in little teams or you can do in communities. You know, you can facilitate some of that. So that is really helpful as well. And then think about, I think the other thing is think about where the blockers are in all of your process Mm -hmm. for a candidate, right? Some candidates struggle with reading. Some candidates struggle with focusing on the task at hand. Some candidates struggle with anxiety because they don't know what's coming. Have you mapped out what happens for candidates and are you sharing that with candidates and then asking candidates where that may be a problem? Not, hey, candidate, are you autistic? But, hey, candidate, here's all the things we're going to ask you to do. We may ask you to do some and not others. And do they harm you? Yeah. What helps you? What could we do to make it better for you? And then touch in with the candidate at each point of that process. And you can automate some of that, by the way. It doesn't have to be you can have a phone all the time. Literally be sending a message saying, hey, we just did this. How did it go? You just did a psychometric assessment. 
hate them. But anyway, you just did that or just did something else, whatever it may be. Providing interview questions up front, uh, like people sometimes run a mile when I say that, but I started doing it. The impact was powerful. I've seen other organizations, I've, I've advised organizations to do it. It doesn't always work. There's reasons why it might not work, but that gives you the evidence to be able to work on it and decide then how you move forwards. You can't see the success of something unless you try it. Get the airplane in yeah. the sky, yeah. and it, if you crash and die, at least you tried, right? <laughs> Amazing. So in terms of kind of the whole candidate experience, candidate process, and we've spoken about some really, really good touch points there as to how to make the experience for candidates much more smoother, kind of less alienating, that kind of thing. How do we kind of marry that so that the whole process is de-biased towards kind of, you know, and just neutral, I guess, to neurodiversity and everyone inclusive in terms of kind of when we're on a panel of interviews, for example, and how do we de-bias the hiring managers perhaps when they're interviewing? I think that's too big a question. And I'll tell you why, because the reality at the moment is we're not doing enough on a micro level, mm-hmm. um, or a macro level or whatever you want to, you know, we're not, we're not di- yeah. diving deep enough in all of those areas. We're not auditing our processes and looking at within neurodiverse lens, right? And until we do that, we just don't have the evidence information to be able to guide what that question potentially do can scare organizations into mm. nothing. Because it is like saying, how can we debias the whole process? It's like, yes. whoa, like we're not even, we're not, we're nowhere near that. And it's not, it's a fair question. It's a good question. It's one that will be mm. asked. But but the reality of the situation that I've learned is we just need to come so far back. Because mm. when I speak to organizations, they're fearful because they're almost feeling like going, I they might be themselves like autistic and they might be going like, I'm really not comfortable with what we do. And now I have to tell you I'm not comfortable with what we do, right? So a lot of what I do, and I do it online, is I be uncomfortable at being me because a lot of these people are not privileged enough in the sense they're attached to an organization. They may not be able to have the voice. They may be struggling with their own journey. They may not have mm-hmm. the diagnosis. Like there's a lot of struggle with acceptance of the situation. And then to go, I work for a company that actually I worry about. I mm. worry about the corporate responsibility. Mm. I worry about them having a lack of policy and procedure around DNI. I worry about, you know, like, so then to go, let's devise the whole British line. But, but for recruiters, I can say, this is powerful. We own our words. We own our candidates, own our processes. Like, we own so much of what we do. Mm. Like, we are. Like, organizations didn't realize before. That's why... Talent acquisition has become so fundamentally important to organizations because of a lack of talent, but also because the realization that actually we're powerful in terms of our level of responsibility and what we do um, for organizations. And I think that, like, you put the power into the individual. We can try and influence at the top to get the budget and the money. And then we can try and influence middle management more broadly across the organization. We can try and ensure that the right CHR always brought in or HR director or VPHR, whatever. But for recruiters, they can't control. I can try and control that. They can't. What they can control is the advert, the way they speak to a candidate, yeah. the way they influence a manager. And But if you are talking about recruitment, like sitting in front of somebody, you can try and educate a manager to say, this candidate so, in front of you, they may not hold eye contact. Yeah. Right? They struggle to answer questions. 
but I've now spent three hours with them. This is how you ask this person, yeah. right? Very direct question, very specific, and be aware you're going to get a five-word response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you don't ask follow-up questions to this person, you will just get the Because all they're going to hear is, tell me how you did this. And they'll go, well, I did that by doing that. And you're like, what? That person didn't do that. They, yeah. Like, so the recruiter can do the most powerful thing that they can do, which is spend time with a candidate, believe in them, buy into them, almost a bit of coaching and natural coaching and mentoring that you would do as a recruiter, but then go to the manager and go, this is what you're about to get. And you know what? In consultancies, recruiters are really good at that because there's a fee on it. Yeah. So they will sell that candidate. What the recruiters are not good at doing is putting sometimes extra effort into candidates that need a lot of extra effort. Yeah. But what in-house recruits have got, they've got the ability to have these candidates come through where they may not come through by the agency, for example. So you may be able to have the conversation with your manager to say, can you give me a bit more time with a small proportion of candidates? Allow me an extra couple of hours a week. That means I can spend instead of 30 minutes, but an hour to an hour and a half with this group of candidates. So that I can coach and mentor them. And then when they get to the situation you were talking about, which is the, the interview, they're well prepared. Yeah. They know their journey. You've mapped it out for them. They're not really scared or almost ahead of them because you've yeah. let them know. And then the manager also has all that information to deal with as well. And you're more likely then to understand the adaptations that we're trying to help you do it myself. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, really. So if there was one thing that you would want businesses to do right now, just one, what would you say to them? Give me a call. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. No, like, so yes, fine, right? But the the reality is, I think you just need to, the one thing I would do is to start on the journey of awareness, Mm -hmm. but not just to leave it at that. And it is easy to leave it at that. The amount of organizations I go and speak at, and I've got my LinkedIn profile, and you see the, yeah. the responses. I find I always turn up to these things thinking, this is the day where I'm going to be found out. This is the day where I'm going to walk <laughs> in, and they're all going to be looking at me like, who is this guy? What is he on about? Like, go away. And so, like, that'll never go. It's me. It, it, like, I have to deal. I, that's the seeing a million colors and hearing a million sounds. Right? That's the reality of my life. But the, the feedback is powerful. My fear is that they then don't act on that. And again, because maybe then it's overwhelming to think what are the next steps I take, which is why an audit, whoever you do it with, whoever, whether you're doing something, whatever, auditing your processes, thinking around where the pain points are, thinking around where the big opportunities are that you can do quickly, and, and then the big opportunities, they take a long time. Some things you will have to accept, and all this box opening, that are, are bad. They're not good, mm-hmm. but they're going to take huge investment in time and energy mm-hmm. and, and almost organizational transformation, right? But if you know it, you put that there, it shouldn't mean you don't do anything else. Oh, we can't do anything else because every candidate's going to come through and say, that's awful. No, you know it's awful. You present that it's awful. You accept that it's awful. But you still do something about your 30% of your workforce, your 30% of applications. Your, the people are there. Yeah. You keep yeah. poking people in the eye. Stop doing it. Like, that's... Yeah. And there's one thing you've, you've missed, and I'm going to call it out for you. But I think you're, you're probably one of the very few people in the industry 
who have allowed other people to find the purpose around neurodiversity. And I think that's the one thing that organizations that you do really, really well is finding purpose, you know, with the manager, recruiter, or whatever. And then once you've found your purpose, it's easy. It's easy to talk about. It's easy to drive. So thanks for all your work you're doing across the industry. Let me just add to that. So because this is the the buzzword, right? Like the belonging or finding your why. That is what you've just hit on there. I did a piece of work with a technology company and helped launch their ERG. And what happened from launching the neurodiversity ERG is the people involved in that ERG started creating technology with neurodiversity in mind. So all of a sudden, they've been working there for years. They've got kids who are autistic. All of a sudden, by creating and launching the RG, giving them a voice, opening Pandora's box, giving them their why, what did they do? They started to build technology that's going to help kids in the classroom. Like, that is mind-blowing. Translate that into the health system, translate that into any other facet and aspect, service industry, whatever. You've just given 20 to 30 percent of your people a why. And they may be in the people that may really been struggling to understand why they were doing what they were doing in the organization they were at. Boom. There's your reason to invest in this. Thanks. Thanks for your time, Theo. I mean, it's been an incredible conversation. It has. Really, really eye-opening. Thank you really very much. I hope things are kind of changing. I feel like between us, we feel the waves of change. I just kind of hope that that extends beyond what we feel inside. 30,000 people turned up, more signed up in the end for Neurodiversity Celebration Week. In April, um, it's UN Autism Awareness Week and Day, and I'm doing something for that. So the voice or voices are now starting to be seen, to be heard, and to get out there. And that drives change. Um, Exactly. Good. Great to catch up. I'm sure we'll speak to each other very soon. And uh, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. See you. Take care. And that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, thank you for listening. If you'd like to be a guest on the Talent Sandbox podcast, email hello at talentsandbox.com.